well, how are you guys? It got cold out there all of a sudden, didn't it? Uh, I was looking on my phone earlier today, and we, we were supposed to be like high 40s, and then like middle of the day. It was colder in the middle of the day than when I came into work this morning. It's just, I don't like this. I'm, I'm moving to Hawaii or something. I don't, yes, amen. Can I hear an amen? Okay. Um, well, hey, I'm so glad you guys are here. A couple of quick kind of announcement things. Um, one is if you open up your bulletin on the inside in, in red letter, this is our red letter, not Bible, but red letter bulletin. Um, reminder, next Wednesday is our last Wednesday for the semester. Uh, the Wednesday after is our annual business meeting, and we can't push that, so they're basically kicking us, us out of here. So you, you can show up and be at the business meeting. I, I hope you will come. Next week, we'll actually be uh, introducing some of the deacons that we'll be voting on at our business meeting. So you'll get a chance to see them if you are going to be there for, for the business meeting. And, um, you know, just as, um, as always, I'm so grateful for so many volunteers. I mean, just as I'm looking out, you know, Dave with ushers and he has others and Jan running media and um, so many of we had. Um, actually, if you would be praying for uh, Celeste Jordan, she normally uh, does our communion, and she was in a car accident this week, and her van is is uh, not drivable, and, and she's doing well, but um, still kind of shaken up from that. So she normally does um, our communion, um, but I think we have uh, Fanchon is here doing communion. I think I saw her earlier, so thank you, Rebecca, who does snacks. Um, Brianna brought some snacks. I'm just really grateful for all the um, our, our band the time that they give. So can you just like thank them all for this semester and super, super grateful um, because they show up every week and, and, and make, this, make this work. So I'm, I'm really thankful for them. Um, so we're, we're in week nine of our series on the 10 commandments. And um, this one, this one I think is, um, gets us at, at levels that, that we're not always thinking about. At least it, it has for me this week. Um, most of you, as I'm looking around the room, are old enough to remember uh, 9-11, right? Uh, September 11th, uh, 2001, when terrorists flew uh, planes into buildings of power in our world. And as, as a result of it, uh, stock markets around the world collapsed, if you remember that. This was, again, toward the end of 2001. What, what you might not remember is by early 2002, just a matter of months, most of those stock markets had largely regained their stability. However, something happened just a few months later after they had regained their stability, and this time it was scandals of truth. Do you remember what it was? Remember the names of companies like Enron? Do you remember that? Um, WorldCom, many, many others just wiped off the face of the earth because of a massive internal moral failure of truth. They, they, they cut corners, partial truths. Um, and as a result of that, what, what's really fascinating is the stock markets around the world, they fell further and they fell faster than they did after 9-11. And what that tells us is that what the market feared most was not a terrorist attack from without, but a moral collapse of truth from within. So we just see that in our world. Um, how many of you have ever seen the, the television show? It stars Tim Roth. It's, it's called Lie to Me. Anyone, anyone watch this when it was 
when it was out. Um, it was, it's a really good show. It's on Netflix now. So you can like go home tonight and just binge watch Lie to Me. It's a really good show. I think there's an image of it up here if, if, if we have it. This was kind of, maybe you remember seeing it if you, if you come across it on Netflix. It's called Lie to Me. And it's, it's a series. I think there's like maybe four seasons, maybe five seasons in there. But it's based off real life research um, of a guy by the name of Paul Ekman. He did his studies at the um, University of Oxford, and he was interested in what's called microexpression. This next picture here, I think if we have it. Um, microexpressions are these, are these things that basically what he realized, and if you ever see like a spy movie, you know like when someone's being interrogated and they've got like four cameras on them and people are, it's like they're really close to their face, you know what I mean by that? Th that's based off of this research by, by Paul Ekman, and so they'll be looking at maybe the person's eye or their mouth or, or something about their face because Paul Ekman realized that regardless of your background, regardless of where you grew up, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your culture, of the nation you were born into, every face has micro-expressions micro that, that we do when, for instance, we're lying that we do when we feel embarrassment, that we do when we're angry, and we, we, we almost can't help it. We just naturally do these tiny little micro-expressions, and every face does them. It's, and, and so, of course, the idea is, if you can learn to read these tiny little micro-expressions, you can figure out when someone's lying to you. You can figure out when someone feels guilty or something along the So it's, that's powerful info, wouldn't you agree? And in, in real life, um, as you can imagine, this man, you can imagine how much money he made from um, advert, for advertising, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, advising uh, corporations, um, secret service around the world, teaching them how to read these micro expressions so they can determine is this person, are, are they lying about what happened to the funds or was this a true accident or whatever it might be. Um, and so this is something that uh, as someone who has spent a lot of time dealing with lies, this Paul Ekman, he's given his career to this, what he has to say about lies is interesting. These are his words from, from a book. He says, trust is a matter of faith that the person who is trusted won't exploit that trust. Intimacy, close working relationships, romance and friendships, uh, all of these require and in fact depend on trust. It is well known that the last person to know he or she is being betrayed is the person suffering the betrayal. Why? Because the, the betrayed person's trust, quite simply, blocks out recognition of any sign of the blind breach of faith. All the signs that everyone else around them can see so easily be picked up on. We don't want to learn that our trust is being betrayed, that the person you hired is embezzling, that your children are stealing money from your purse. It is terrible to learn that our trust has been misgiven. Most of us are therefore willingly avoid any clues to its discovery. Once trust has been betrayed, he says, can it ever be restored? Not always and not by everyone. Even when the betrayal is forgiven and the betrayed person does not want to give up the relationship, it still may be very difficult to completely trust again. 
This is the price of lying about serious matters. The loss of trust that may never be restored. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, undermines relationships and results in the suspicious person's misery. That's true. All of us face choices. Do we, based on faith, take the risk of being misled by trusting? Or do we take the risk of not only disbelieving the truthful person, but never being able to establish close connections because of chronic suspicion? Who do you trust? <laughs> is, it, is, it, is, it, is it well-founded trust? Are you a person who is trustworthy? What would your closest friends say? Are you a trustworthy person? See, I would suggest this is one of the most relevant topics in the modern world. I mean, think about our media today. Every single day, there's stories coming out. Can you trust the media? Right? Are they being truthful? And it's, culture is extremely polarized even over that issue right there. Politicians, can you trust the words, the, the truth claims of a politician? There's, our, again, our culture is polarized over these things. And we see the, the word that's in our subtitle. We see the chaos, right? We see chaos in our culture when bearing false witness against our neighbor when I engage in it, when I practice it. And then when we corporately engage in it and we practice it. And so again, we see this place of God is giving these, these 10 commandments as an antidote to this kind of cultural, and I would even say heart level relational chaos. So let's read, read the commandments if you have your bulletin. Um, as we've said each week, commandments are given twice in scripture, remember Exodus 20, and then again to the next generation in Deuteronomy 5, and they're virtually identical in both places. Exodus 20, we read, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and then Deuteronomy 5, 20, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, now, bearing false witness, th this command, it's the one that probably um, is most closely associated with other commandments. Meaning, why do people lie? Typically, you lie because of one of the other nine. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> um, sixth commandment, taking of a life, you'll, you, you cover that up. Seventh commandment, taking of a spouse, you cover that issue up. A, a fraud, stealing, the eighth commandment, you cover that up with what? False testimony, right? So, so lying seems to be the one thing that no one does for the sake of itself. Have you ever thought of that? No one lies just to lie. There's no point. <laughs> I lie to exploit. That's why I lie. Either exploit your perceptions of me, or I, or, or I lie to exploit because I want to gain or obtain something I don't possess or doesn't belong to me. But so, so lying doesn't exist for itself, if you can kind of think of it that way. <laughs> it exists to get something else that we think about in these. But lies always produce damage. Usually in people that I might be trying to exploit, sometimes in myself, oftentimes in myself as well. Listen to Proverbs 25, verse 8. I think this should be up on the screens. It says, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. So you see the connection with, um, in scripture, co 
constantly lying or libel or slander, it's constantly linked with, with, with this violent response, that it does violence to another image bearer of God by engaging in this. So let's look at kind of the context of this, and we'll walk through this up. So the context, it's a legal proceeding. It's a legal proceeding. It has application outside of that, but the context of the law specifically, and you can see it even just in the words if you think carefully about them, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false, what's the word? Witness. This is a legal term. You will not testify or give witness to the fact of something that is false about your neighbor. And again, the only reason you ever do it is because you're exploiting. Maybe you've taken a bribe to do it. Maybe you want something they have. Maybe you don't like them. But you're doing it ultimately to exploit. And that's this, again, legal proceeding here. So in community, think about this. In communities, we are called or we function as witnesses of people's lives, right? You witness my life. I witness your behavior. You witness my words. So there's this communal aspect to every single life, certainly within the church, even outside of the church. And we've been charged, if you remember like last week, remember with the theft, we said it's not just taking stuff. You remember what the positive side was? It's guarding people and their things, right? Protecting them, caring for them. And so we've been, we've been charged with the care of our neighbor, and we see that continuing to come up in every single one of these commandments, that they have something to do with neighboring well, taking care of our neighbors. And so the prohibition, in fact, let me, let, let me read this little short statement by Patrick Miller. He's a commentator um, on the book of Exodus, and, and he writes this. Uh, the prohibition against bearing false witness, it's not so much a general rule against lying as it is a guard against the capacity of words and speaking to endanger one's neighbor in various ways, or indeed to bring about a violation of the commandments that preceded this one, all the ones that we kind of just talked about there. Telling the truth, I like this, is thus a neighbor matter. And he finishes by saying, it is a form of the love of neighbor. When you, when you speak truth, when you don't bear false witness, you're loving your neighbor. You're loving the person in your life. So the role of witness, it, it's taken so seriously that for a person to bring a false charge against someone um, in, a, in a malicious sense, that's that, you know, if, if you have malice, again, you're, you're tempting to exploit, take something of theirs or something along those lines. It's so, it's so significant, and there's so much danger involved, the law actually gives several safeguards against this happening. So God knows the community is going to do this. <laughs> They're going to bear false witness against neighbor. And so he builds in some safeguards to say, okay, if you're going to do it, here's what you're up against. And I think these are wise. These are really interesting. Number one, and this is in Deuteronomy 19. It's not on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn them on or open them up. Deuteronomy 19, and we'll kind of be in there for a little bit. Verse 16, this is what we read. If a malicious witness, okay, well, here, I'll, I'll just give you, here's the first safeguard. The first safeguard is that you have to be, if you're assuming you're the false witness, okay, you have to be willing to gamble everything, including your life. That's the first safeguard against you doing this, because here's what we're told. 
If a, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israel, Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do to the other party. You see that? If you're testifying against someone for murder, <laughs> and, you're, and you're shown to be false, guess what happens to you? What would have happened to them had they been accused of it? He, and he says, uh, you must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. Yeah, I bet they will. <laughs> and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. And he says, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's the talion, the lex talionis, an eye, an eye for an eye. What he's saying is if someone seeks out to maliciously take someone else down in some way and they're demonstrated to be false, they have to be willing to lose the very thing that they're trying to put on this person. Okay? Interesting. So the very first safeguard, you have to be willing to gamble everything. Second safeguard against you or, or I acting as a malicious, uh, false, uh, giving a false uh, witness um, it's that you can't keep your hands clean. Let me read the passage and I think you'll see it. Deuteronomy 17, this I think should be up on the screen. Deuteronomy 17, six through seven. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the death sentence shall be executed. So if a person has done a capital crime and they've had two or three witnesses, a person must not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. Now here's the key part. The hands of the witnesses, those two or three or more, shall be the first raised against the person to execute the death penalty. So do you see it? Meaning if you bring a death penalty on someone, you have to be willing to actually throw the first stone. And if you're wrong, if you're lying, what does that make you? It makes you a murderer. Right? So you can't have your hands clean. You can't accuse the person and then go, well, that's, that's kind of done. No, 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 no. Go get the stone. You start. You kill this person with your own hands. You do that. So the person found guilty of capital punishment, you as the witness, you become the agent of the execution. And so it's this sort of um, symbolic acknowledging of my role in this case against this person as, as a witness. Uh, number three, third safeguard. There is a scrutinizing investigation by leaders and multiple witnesses. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 16, we read, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, we've read this, the two people involved uh, in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord. And then it says, before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time, the judges must make a thorough investigation. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, 14, similar statement made to the officials. It said, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly if the matter, if, if it is true and if the matter is established. So he, he establishes, much like we have in our legal system when things work well here, is that there has to be careful investigation, careful deliberation. This can never be handled in a light way. And then the fourth safeguard uh, that I'll mention here, there may be others, but these are ones that are just obvious in the surrounding text. The fourth safeguard is this idea that 
God is there and he will not be fooled by an unjust decision. Um, and that God will judge whoever that guilty one is. This is a sort of overarching safeguard. What he's saying is, are you, are you, a, are you a faithful Israelite who's honoring God, who, who, fears, who fears God in the biblical right sense of the word? Because I see everything. There's not a stone that's unturned. I see every motive. I see every single thing going on. Listen to Deuteronomy 19, 16. If the malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute, this is interesting, must stand in the presence of the Lord. See, a a godly Israelite knows God's not mocked. (laughs) I'm I'm not getting away with anything. Right? I might have fooled everyone here. You might all completely think one thing. God's eyes are watching, and he's saying, I will be the judge. Don't worry. I will make restitution. I will judge. Um, now, this actually sheds some light on a, on a common, a well-known, but maybe not always best understood New Testament, New Testament passage. Um, read with me Matthew 18. Think about what we've just read, okay? Now think about the words of Jesus. Jesus is talking about in the context of Matthew 18 when, when there is, is community discipline, church discipline, and what the leaders are supposed to do. He says this, if your brother or sister sins, this is uh, 1815, Matthew 1815, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take what? This is language from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Take one or two others along, so that why? Every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you get it that this is, this is like judicial decision context, right? You get that's what he's talking about? You don't have this on, your, on, on the screen, but let me just keep reading. Verse 17. If they refuse to listen to you, tell the church or the broader community. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which is expulsion from the community. And then verse 18, he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I've heard that verse referred to bizarre things, but almost never referred to decisions that are made <laughs> regarding guilt and innocence releasing someone or binding them in this way. And then verse 19, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Context is legal decisions. Again, I've heard this verse, you say, you just ask for whatever you want. No, the context, context is legal decisions. And then finally, another verse that we oftentimes might not use appropriately. He says, for where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am there with them. We oftentimes say that it's like, well, let's pray because we know if there's two gathered here, Jesus, as though like if there's only one person here, Jesus is not here kind of thing. What he's saying is if you have two or more witnesses, I am watching. You know, you know Yahweh of the Old Testament who says he's watching? Yeah, that's me. I'm watching every decision. Essentially, he's claiming to be the judge. If you, even you in church, if you, if you hand down decisions that are unjust, Jesus is saying, I'm aware. I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to always, almost, not, not, it was like for a period of time, probably where she was like most worried about me. Every time I would go out the door, like go out with friends or whatever, she'd be like, okay, I have a fun time. Oh, and hey, Brent, just remember, 
Jesus is watching. I'm like, uh, you know, and then, I, you know, eventually I started filling in the line. You should be like, Brent, remember, I'm like, I know Jesus is watching, <laughs> but that's this idea here. There's nowhere that, that Jesus isn't. And again, not in a way to hit us over a head, you know, with the, with the bat the minute we screw up, but it's this idea of, is there anyone who's going to exploit another person? Is there anyone who, who's going to do deep injustice and harm to an image bearer? Because Jesus says, boy, I care deeply about that. I care deeply about it. And we're two or more making those decisions, handing it down. I'm there. Don't think I'm not. So um, a transition here real quickly. We need to say a word about what this commandment does not mean. Um, I'll, I'll say three things that, that it doesn't mean. We need to have a nuanced understanding of this and not a overly simplistic understanding of, of this command. First of all, it doesn't mean that we always have to give exhaustive information to questions without ever withholding information. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean it's, it's always a sin if you don't give exhaustive, every little bit of information, and never withhold any. It also doesn't mean that um, we're not supposed to be tactful or kind in how we give truth to people. And then thirdly, the command was not given in order to perpetuate evil. And I bring these up because I remember when I used to teach an ethics class uh, for college level students at Dayspring Center for Christian Study. And each time we would get to, you know, it's, it, it'd be like biblical ethics. We'd study different ethical systems and that sort of thing. We would, we would get to some of these commands and, and students would like struggle because they would come up with these like absurd circumstances. Like, well, but, but we have to be truthful. Like we have to, have to do that. And so um, I'll just kind of walk through some of these and show you the, the absurdity of what this is not saying when it comes to bearing false witness against our neighbor. Number one, it doesn't mean that we have to always give exhaustive information and never withhold. A little kid says, hey, mommy, where do babies come from? Well, I'm a Christian. I, have, I can't withhold any information. Here, sit down. Let me, let me tell you in exhaustive detail all the anatomical requirements and activities required to produce a biological child. Right? Really? Is that what this first, is this, is this what this command is saying? Um, or, or, or we might think of a, a grieving, suffering parent comes to a Christian doctor, a, a doctor who was unable to save their child. And they say, doctor, did, did my child suffer? Oh, I'm a Christian doctor, yes. Let me give you an exhaustive, acute detail, every single bit of suffering that your child went through. Clearly, that's not what this verse is is trying to say, um, or again, you know, maybe something lighter. Are you planning a surprise birthday party for me? Oh yes. Here's the list. I'm a Christian. I can't, here's the list of everyone who's coming. It's going to be at six o'clock. I don't want to withhold information. I'll tell you everything that is going on. How about, how about the Christian quarterback who looks left and throws right? <laughs> That's deception, isn't it? Um, what about, what about the no look pass in basketball? Right? He is intending to make someone think one thing while doing the other. Is this really what this, you know, does the Christian basketball player need to repent as he runs down the court then after, after that moment? Or in baseball, you know, the change up, changing up his speeds as he's pitching. Well, clearly not. That's not what this passage about bearing a false witness 
against our neighbor. So you need to be careful that we, we don't take it to this absurd place that's not nuanced at all. Clearly they understood this. We have to understand it as well. Number two, it does not mean that we do not have to be tactful or kind as we give information. Does this dress make me look fat? Uh, did you like dinner tonight? Uh, Daddy, how did I play in the, in the basketball game today? How did I do? Well, son, you made a lot of mistakes. Let me, let me tell you in exhaustive detail all of the ways that you messed up tonight and screwed up. Yeah, that's good parenting, right? <laughs> Clearly, that's not what's going on. Uh, maybe a pastor says, how'd you like my sermon? <laughs> Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.15. He says, speaking the truth in... Love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, there are some forms of speaking the truth that is incompatible with loving your neighbor. There are some forms of speaking the truth that are incompatible with Christian love. So is the purpose of the biblical commandment really given in order for me to not be tactful and just, well, here's everything. I'll just tell you every single thing. <laughs> no, clearly not. Because that doesn't even jive with love and what God is calling us to in that way. Number three, the command was not given in order to allow evil to perpetuate. Are you hiding any Jews? Oh, I'm a Christian. Yes, there's four upstairs. Let me give you the map. I don't want to withhold any information from you, and I don't want you to waste time because I have to be fully truthful, and if you only see three, there is a fourth. No, of course not. That's, that's absolutely absurd. A father comes home, home drunk, and he says to his son, where's your mother? And the son knows the reason he's asking is because he's going to go abuse her. Is the son being immoral for, for, not, for withholding the information to the father? Of course not. See, one, one caveat about speaking the truth is, is, is found in what one scholar calls what he's formulated, the freedom to deceive. <laughs> Telling the truth is the norm, okay? Don't go away and be like, pastor said I could lie tonight. This is fantastic. No. Telling the truth is the norm. But it may not always be the moral choice. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples of it. You remember in Exodus chapter 1, when little Moses is born, what is he in threat of, in danger of? Yeah, thrown into the Nile River. Remember, Pharaoh goes to the Hebrew midwives and says, any male that is born, you take them and you do a post-birth abortion. Every single, every single male that's born. And what we read about in Exodus chapter 1, that, that when, they, when they don't do this, when they refuse, to, not refuse, they basically they're, they're born, they, they deliberately give a false deceptive answer to Pharaoh. Here's their answer. Because he says, why aren't you doing it? I told you to kill him. And he says, I love this answer. They go, man, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can even get there. Right? Man, who's already born, they've already, you know, done. Boy, they're really good at it. And two times in the text, in verse 19, the text speaks of this as an act of fearing God. Fearing God. Or we might think of another, uh, a, a similar one with another woman, um, Rahab. 
Remember, she's, she's the woman who in Jericho sneaks the, spy, the Israelite spies in, and then when the king sends people to say, where are the spies? She says, they went that way. Right? Well, they're hiding right here. And yet she is commended for fearing God because there is something that trumps this true statement, and that's protecting an image bearer. This command, it was never given to perpetuate evil. And if a person thinks it is, they're completely misunderstanding the purpose of this. That is adding chaos to the world. It is not protecting it. And I would submit to you, God always calls us to do the moral thing. Always. God, God always calls us to do the right and the just thing. And there are rare occasions, very rare very rare occasions when the life of my neighbor is in jeopardy that the moral thing to do may be to deceive the evil doer. In fact, it's interesting. Do you realize that throughout the Old and New Testament, one way that God brings judgment on evil doers, people who are deceptive and evil, do you know what he does? He uses deception in order to bring their downfall. I'll just give you two examples here. First uh, Kings 22 verse 19. Now this is the reign. Remember the King Ahab? Remember that name? Horrible guy. Deceptive, murderous, awful, awful guy. And we read this. This is during his reign of King Ahab. Um, and Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He, this is a vision that uh, Micaiah is giving, and all the host of heaven standing before him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of, your, all of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster on you. He's, it's, it's, it's like a judo move. <laughs> He's taking the deception of Ahab and turning it back around and using it on him to bring about his destruction. The apostle Paul recognizes the very same thing. His second letter to the church at Thessalonica, chapter two, verse eight, um, we read this. And then the lawless one will be revealed. He's talking about like the final act of God bringing judgment on evil, things we read about in the book of Revelation of places. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So you see the deception of the person. Because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness and deception. See, in order to judge evil, 
God will sometimes use the powers of deception against those who wield deception for the destruction of image bearers. See, God gets to decide when and how evil is punished. And sometimes deception is the method that he uses. Now, here's one of the dangers that I want to recognize. It's a danger for us talking about this is um, I might think like this. Well, I, I, if I'm a follower of God, may, I guess I can just act like God, right? I can, I can do that. It's okay for me to lie. It's okay for me, as long as I'm doing it to um, bad people, right? What's the problem with that? How astute of a judge are you at who are the bad people who deserve to be deceived, who, who deserve to be taken down because you know every detail that's going on in their lives. Is it possible that anyone thinks you are that bad person in your life? <laughs> I would suggest there may be someone who thinks the very same thing. Because see, here's the diagnosis of me and my keen ability um, to, to mete out justice. Oh, I think you, you, you're rotten. I've seen what you've done. I'm going to deceive you because I want to bring justice on you. Here's, here's the diagnosis about that. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that appears right, I'll say to Brent, <laughs> but in the end it leads to death. Oh, you mean I don't have perfect apprehensions of what's true and what ought to happen? That's weird. Or here's the diagnosis of me and even my own awareness of my motives and my intent. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, I'd say of Brent, is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. See, because only God knows all. He knows every tiny detail. Because only God is able to bring judgment, I would suggest each one of us has to bear the name of Daniel. You remember what the name Daniel means? God is my judge. I'm leaving it up to him. <laughs> I'm leaving judgment to him. I think that person deserves it. I'm not happy with that person. I kind of hope that person gets it. <laughs> but it's not up to me to mete out justice through whatever means I might think is reasonable. Instead, God is my judge. That is how I will live. And I leave all of the, I'm called to do what's right, do what's honest, speak the truth in love. And in those rare circumstances where I'm protecting an image bearer, but I leave the consequences in God's hand. And I'm called to seek justice. There was, um, I don't know how many of you remember the name um, Andy Roddick. Andy Roddick was one of the highest, in fact, in 2004, 2005, he was the highest ranked American tennis player. Uh, amazing guy. In fact, in, in 2004, uh, he delivered what was then the fastest serve in professional tennis. 155 miles per hour. Can you imagine? Like, I couldn't even get out of the way if someone hit a tennis ball at me that fast, you know? Amazing, amazing tennis player. And um, in, a year later, in 2005, he was in the Rome Masters, and he was leading Fernando Verdasco from Spain. 
And uh, Roddick was beating him, and it came down to the last serve from Ferdasco, or Fernando, uh, and it was long. And so the lineman uh, called it out. The umpire was about to announce that the American was the winner. Roddick saw the ball nick the line. He saw it. And so he went over to the line judge, and he actually argued. He goes, no, it, I saw it. I was here. I was closer. It hit the line. It's in. Basically refused the point. And, you know, I'm not going to accept that. And uh, he actually, the, the line judge allowed him to overrule him in this way. So Ferdasco gets another serve, which he won. Then he won the next point, and the next point, and, and he won the game. And then Verdasco won the next game, and the next game, and he won the set. And then Verdasco won the next set, and the next set, and he won the match. And Verdasco lost. He lost the match. But he won his integrity. And here's my question to you. What is your integrity worth? Is it worth a match? Is it worth a business deal going the way you would like it to go? Is it worth a, a, a night of pleasure and enjoyment? Is it worth a grade? What is your integrity worth to, to bear some false witness? Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. And what I love about this is it's, it's recognizing, here's, here's the reality that I would suggest to you. You and I, I am, I am becoming a certain kind of person by every true statement I make, especially the ones that cost me. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> like I hate those. But sometimes, like the book of Proverbs says, swear even unto your own hurt. Even if it causes you backlash, be a truthful person because you're becoming a certain kind of person. And I would suggest each one of us, we are training to become a truthful person, someone who walks in the truth. But the testing of my truthfulness, it's not like a final exam that I get to prepare for in that sense. It's like a pop quiz. My moments of integrity like Roddick's come at a moment. I don't have time. Let's see, what should I do? Maybe I'll ask you know, my friends. Who I've become by that point, I just react. That's why it's so important. That's why for me, I desperately want to become a person who people would say, man, they speak the truth in love, but they are a truthful person. There's no malice in them. And I, I can't say that I am 100%. I want to be that way. And so Paul writes these words, Ephesians 4, so then putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors. Man, I want to do that. For we are members of one another. There's that ownership. I, I, I'm, I'm part of you. Be angry. Yeah, you're going to be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing rather than labor, rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need. I love this phrase, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Boy, I would like to be that this week. I would like to be a person that my words this week, my truthful words of are giving grace to everyone who they come across, every ear that it falls on. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Well, that's a phrase we've come across this whole series. Be an imager. <laughs> Image God. That's what he's done. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What he's saying is this is what should propel us. The sacrifice that Jesus made, that should both give you a buoyancy and allow you to be a person of truth because look what the one who is the way and the truth and the life did for us. And so every time I take this, tonight I want us to remind ourselves and say, God, help me to be a person of truth. Help, me to, help there for, for there to be no difference between what I say and what I do. No gap, zero gap between what I say and what I do, but a person of integrity. And this is our reminder. He was, I can on my own, but he can help me do it. He can enable me for that. So, would you allow me, I want to take just 60 seconds and I want to say a prayer. I, I was thinking about the, there's a phrase in that song, I don't know if you, if you remember, it says, I'm, I'm done with hiding. <laughs> and, and for those of us, and I would put myself in, in that category, who struggle with this, who struggle with being this authentic self, I just want to pray for us. And, and, and maybe this is a time for you to say, hey, I'm, I am done with that, that hiding, which is to say not being fully truthful. So if, if this relates to you, join me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we know that you see everything. Um, we do need to be done with hiding because there's nothing that's really even hidden from you. But God, I pray for myself and anyone else who, who would step into the same group with me who would just say, God, I want to be a singular person. No, no false versions of me, no masks, no deception, but a person who is one, where there's zero gap between my words and my actions. And I want to accurately represent who I am. God, I, I want to be done with exploiting maybe others' perceptions or whatever it might be. God, I want to walk in truth. May this be a new moment for some of us this evening who are stepping into that and who just say, we're done with hiding. Empower me to live an authentic real life. God, we know you answer that prayer. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.